Well, good morning. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. John's Gospel, chapter 21. We come this morning to the end of our series in the Gospel of John. We come to the last chapter of John's Gospel, and um, I hope to preach the entire passage. Uh, But let me ask that we first read this passage together. Uh, Please follow along as I read John uh, chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Then they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus Loved, following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. 
So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. We know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John 21 uh, is, in essence, what can be called an epilogue, an epilogue, uh, something that is attached to the end of a story, a narrative, something like that, uh, that brings closure to the work. If you read uh, John's gospel through the end of John 20, you'll see the last verses of John 20 really do serve as a fitting conclusion to the book. Um, There you have the purpose statement of John's gospel. But it's as though John, in the 21st chapter of the gospel, wants to tie up some loose ends to his narrative. He does this with an epilogue. Uh, Like in in literature or in plays or in a film, sometimes at the end they'll, they'll, they'll share with you kind of what happened to some of the main characters in the story or, 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 or where these events uh, eventually you know, went after the end of the actual narrative itself. And that's what John is providing us here. He's providing us with an epilogue. Uh, in John's epilogue, chapter 21, he returns to the narrative surrounding Peter and his relationship with the Lord. So, so what I want to do is kind of summarize uh, verses uh, 1 through 14 leading up to that dialogue between Jesus and Peter. Uh, so we, we saw a moment ago that, that John tells us that Jesus uh, had come to reveal himself again to his disciples. Uh, Peter and the disciples decide that they're going to go fishing. I guess they were fishing overnight. Uh, they didn't catch anything at all. And at dawn, Jesus, though the disciples don't yet recognize him as Jesus, uh, Jesus is there on the beach and he tells the disciples to cast the net on the other side of the boat and Uh, When they do that, having not caught anything the night before, they cast the net on the other side, and all of a sudden the nets are filled with fish, almost to bursting uh, the net. So many fish that they can't even haul it in. And if if you know the gospel accounts well and the story of Jesus well, um, you might see here that, that kind of being recreated in this scene is something that took place actually in another gospel account in Luke chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 11. It's there in Luke 5 that essentially the same thing happens. Uh, The disciples are not catching any fish. Jesus tells them to go ahead and lay the net on the other side of the boat, and and the same thing happens. Uh, uh, All of a sudden, the the nets are nearly bursting. And at that time, when when that took place in Luke 5, we read that Peter Peter falls down, uh, and he says, depart from me, Lord. Uh, He realizes that he is a sinner. And he's in the presence of someone great and someone awesome. Uh, And that happens when uh, Jesus told Peter to fish. Well, it's then actually that they leave all and follow Jesus back there in Luke 5. Well, anyway, here in John 21, after this event has taken place again, Peter, excuse me, John recognizes it to be the Lord. Peter then jumps in the water uh, to swim to the shore. It's like the boat couldn't have gotten him there fast enough. He jumps out himself to get to the Lord as quickly as possible. And that may say something about sort of the frame of spirit, the frame of mind that Peter is in at this moment, an eagerness 
uh, to be with Jesus and have an audience with him. Well, then we read uh, Jesus in very um, simple, um, it, it, it almost reads in a sort of prosaic kind of way. He makes breakfast for them in the most simple, ordinary sort of way. They share breakfast together. And, uh, and then John notes that this was the third time that Jesus had appeared to them. So probably, according to John's gospel, we have his first appearance to the disciples together, all gathered together, uh, save Thomas. Then he appears to them again in John 20, this time with Thomas there. And now we're to understand this to be the third time that Jesus gathers together uh, uh, with them. Uh, now, all I'd like to do from this point on is to look at the conversation that then takes place between Peter and Jesus and draw out some lessons for us. Uh, there are, if, if you know uh, Greek at all, or you've heard other sermons on this text, there are some interesting uh, linguistic variations in some of the words that are used. So, for example, three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And he actually uses a different word for love uh, one of the times in there. Uh, when, when, when Jesus is commissioning Peter and says, feed my sheep, he uses different words to describe uh, the sheep and, and what it is that Peter should do in feeding them or tending them or shepherding them. Uh, I, I personally don't read a lot into those variations in the words there. Um, I want to stick with what's general and what's uh, plain. So, so what do we have here in this conversation between Peter and the Lord? Jesus asked Peter the same question three times, do you love me? And Peter makes an affirmation of his love for the Lord three times. And three times the Lord commissions Peter to feed his sheep and then to, to follow him. So I want to follow this outline and opening up the narrative and then we'll look at some lessons for us. Um, notice, first of all, that Jesus brings Peter to shame. Jesus brings Peter to a place of shame. In, in this dialogue between Peter and the Lord, uh, Jesus brings Peter to feel the personal nature of his betrayal. Through this line of questioning, Jesus wants Peter to feel the gravity of what he's done. Peter's sin was a sin against Christ, a sin against Christ's person and against His grace. Peter's sin was a betrayal of the Lord Himself. It was an act, a repeated act of the most profound disloyalty to the Lord. This wasn't a common sin, a sort of what we might call a besetting sin or something like that that any of us you know, might fall in any number of times a day. This was an extraordinary sin, a sin that was sort of outside the pale a sin that was completely inconsistent with being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. The Lord himself said, he who denies me before men, I will deny before my father. That's the sort of sin Peter had committed, a sin completely inconsistent with being the Lord's disciple. It was an act of betrayal, an act of disloyalty to the Lord. And if we ourselves are well acquainted with any failure like this in our own lives, if we're acquainted with our most grievous sins, this is what makes our sins most bitter to us, I think, because we recognize in them some sort, of, some sort of betrayal of the Lord, like a denial of Him, a disloyalty to Him, being something, doing something inconsistent with who we are uh, by virtue of our relationship with Christ. So Jesus asked Peter in verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I think the meaning of the question is, do you love me? more than these disciples love me. I think that's how it 
should read. It's not, Peter, do you love me more than you love these men here? I think we're to imagine the other disciples are present. They are there. They, they can hear this, this dialogue. And Jesus says, do you love me uh, more than these men love me? I think that's the meaning of the question. And, and remember, Peter was the one who had boasted, though they all leave you, Lord, I will never leave you. He pridefully assumed a posture of superiority among the disciples. He thought himself the exception. He, he was not going to fail like these other men. That's how Peter thought about himself. And Jesus, in his own way, is calling to Peter's mind, Peter, you said you'd die for me. You said you'd never leave me like these men. Do you love me more than these, Peter? Jesus' purpose was to bring Peter to shame. You said, Peter, you would love me even if they all ran away. Well, well, they had ran away. But Peter, you denied me with oaths and with swearing. Do you really love me more than these? And it's interesting, as we read on, Peter doesn't actually answer Christ's question. All he can say is, you know, Lord, that I love you. It's like he's saying, I will no longer speak to where I stand among your disciples but, but I can appeal to your knowledge. I do indeed love you. Well, certainly, Jesus recalling Peter's arrogant boastfulness surely produced shame in, in Peter. But there's more to it than that. Jesus goes still further. He asked Peter this question, do you love me? And he asked this question three times. Surely, you've noticed that. And the third time, we read in verse 17, after he's asking the question the third time, John notes every time, the first, the second, the third time. After that, verse 17, we read, Peter was grieved. He was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? Why was Peter so grieved? Well, see, we saw just a few chapters ago, right, didn't we, in, in, in John 18, that Peter had been asked three times if he was the Lord's disciple, and he denied it each time. Well, now Jesus requires Peter three times to make an affirmation of his relationship with Christ, of his love for the Lord. There's no threat surrounding Peter this time, just him and the Lord and a few witnesses. And it's like with each question and with each affirmation, Peter feels again the agony of his former denials. It's like every time the Lord asks him to identify with him and affirm his love for him, he can recall the ways in which he had failed the Lord. Now, now, let me just ask this question. Why is Jesus doing this? Is Jesus just a meanie? Is he just trying to kick Peter while he's down? Well, of course not. Of course not. And here's what I want us to appreciate. This is so important. Bringing Peter to a place of shame was really an act of grace. It was an act of grace it was Christ's means of reviving and restoring Peter. Jesus didn't want to simply embarrass Peter. He was just looking to put Peter down in front of the other disciples. He wanted to bring Peter to a place of shame because real shame over sin, true contrition, heartfelt penitence is actually the pathway to blessing, the pathway to restoration. We saw this several months ago, maybe a couple of years ago now, 
when we look together at Isaiah 57, 15, there we read God saying, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The the idea is for those who actually possess a heart of brokenness and contrition and lowliness and humility in light of their sins and their failures, God draws near to them and he revives them. Uh, David, in the whole episode with Bathsheba and Uriah and his great sins, uh, he, he, he then writes Psalm 51 to confess his sins and to uh, exercise repentance. And there in verse 16 and 17 we read uh, David saying, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And then he says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David is saying, I know that if I am really ashamed over my sin, if I've truly allowed the weight of my sin to impact me, and I've come to you in a state of penitence and contrition and brokenness, God, you won't despise me. Rather, you'll draw near to me. And and it was Peter himself who would write, probably some 30 years after this conversation with the Lord, he says in one of his epistles, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter had experienced that. He knew what it was like to be brought to shame, a place of humiliation, a place of contrition and brokenness, and to experience revival and restoration at the Lord's hands. Friends, we should all appreciate this. Shame is not the enemy. Shame properly understood is not the enemy. Shame over our sin is the pathway to blessing. It's the pathway to God's grace. There was no grace for Peter in hiding and in isolation and in darkness and in minimizing his sins. He had to be brought to a place of real personal shame over his sins because it's there that God is pleased to grant forgiveness. It's there that he's pleased to revive his people. Lots of people think that shame is just out of bounds for Christians. You're a Christian, you're a child of God, you have no reason to be ashamed ever again of anything you say or think. Shame is just not part of the Christian's experience. That notion is all wrong. It's all wrong. We are meant to feel real shame as the appropriate response of our real sins. And and what's more than that, telling people that they should not feel any shame over their sins, I mean, I can think of no easier way to give license to sinning, but more than that, I think think it it harms people internally, and, and it creates real problems for them internally because they don't have a way to process their real sin. Part of the way in which we process our sins is feeling shame over it, and then running to Christ for forgiveness, for grace and for help, even though we have sinned. Shame is part of the normal experience of Christians. So it ought to be when we know we've sinned against the Lord. We must not despise shame. When we know we've sinned against Him, we should come to a place of shame. It's the only appropriate response for our real sins. But more than that, it's the pathway to experience Christ's grace. 
Now understand me, I'm not saying we should wallow in shame. Shame isn't the goal. Shame is not like an act of penitential piety that if you just wallow on the floor enough before God, that somehow makes you more holy or righteous. I'm not saying that. We're never meant to stay in the place of shame, but rather our shame over our real sins is meant to escort us to the waters of blessing, the waters of grace, and the waters of forgiveness. Well, that's the first point. Jesus brings Peter to shame. Secondly, consider with me, Jesus brings Peter to affirm his love. Jesus brings Peter to affirm his love. Though it's so obvious, so plain, I don't want us to miss this or just pass over it. Notice all three of these questions focus on the issue of love. He says, Peter, do you love me? It's a narrow focus to Jesus' questions. It's about love. Does Peter love the Lord? He doesn't ask, Peter, are you sorry? He doesn't ask, have you repented fervently enough? Or have you fasted? He doesn't ask, have you done penance? He doesn't say, do you promise to do better going forward? His concern, the Lord's concern, is this one thing, the reality of Peter's love. Well, why is this the focus? What is it that Jesus is after? It's not that Jesus is trying to challenge Peter. It's not that he wants to humiliate Peter. It wasn't like that Jesus didn't know, and so he just had to find out, you know, Peter, do you love me? Of course, he already knows that Peter loves him. Peter can appeal to Christ's omniscience. You know, Lord, that I love you. So, so why, why is Jesus asking this question? I believe what's going on here is that Jesus wanted, purposed, to deliberately create a situation in which Peter could reaffirm his love for Christ and do so before the gathered disciples and before the saints throughout the ages through John's account. He is after Peter's restoration. He's going to do it publicly. It's no coincidence that Jesus asked Peter to reaffirm his love three times. Although that was painful for Peter, I think what the Lord is doing is that it's, it's like this represents a correcting of the record for Peter. Yes, he had been unfaithful. Yes, he had betrayed the Lord. Yes, he had been disloyal. But the Lord wants to wash all of that away. He wanted to do that from the very beginning. Remember, remember in Luke's account, we referenced this several weeks ago now, G Jesus predicts Peter's denial, and he tells him right there and then, after predicting that he's going to deny the Lord, he says, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and after you have turned again, go and strengthen your brothers. The Lord knew how all of this would go before it happened. He knew that Peter actually loved him, that he was going to deny him, and that he was going to be restored. Now he wants to bring Peter to that place of restoration. He wants him to reaffirm his love and commitment to Christ. Please appreciate this point. Jesus does not ask Peter about his past. He doesn't say, did you love me, Peter, when you, when you denied me? He didn't ask him about the past. He asked him, do you love me now? The verbs in the Greek are in the present tense. Do you love me, Peter? Now, friends, this is always the issue. Peter, for his part, did not appeal to his own record. He knew he couldn't be accepted on the basis of his own performance. All he could say was, Lord, you know that I love you. This is true. I do love you. I adore you. I treasure you. 
I want you. I love you, Lord. And Peter was right. He did love the Lord, and Jesus knew it. Jesus wanted to bring Peter to this place of reaffirming his love. Now consider with me thirdly, Jesus reconfirms Peter's calling as an apostle. Thirdly, Jesus reconfirms Peter's calling as an apostle. Jesus asked the question three times. Peter reaffirms his love three times. And three times, Jesus gives Peter this calling. He says it in different ways. Feed my lambs, tend or shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. Well, Peter had a special calling, didn't he, as, as an apostle. In this sense, Peter is somewhat unique um, the other apostles could sympathize. To some degree, pastors and Christian leaders can sympathize. Peter had a special calling as an apostle, set apart one. Um, and he was to be a leader in the church. We know from 1 Peter 5, uh, he was called to be an elder of the church. He exhorts elders as a fellow elder, he says in 1 Peter 5. He was called to shepherd Christ's sheep, a special calling that Peter was giving given. And, and this calling came to Peter before he ever denied the Lord. It, it came to him with the full knowledge, at least in Jesus' mind, that he one day would deny the Lord. But the calling came to him nonetheless. Remember, he was told in Matthew 16, verse 18, after making his great profession of faith in Christ, the Lord says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter had been called out not only to be a disciple, but to be an apostle, one of Christ's chosen ministers. Well, I think we hardly need to wonder about what Peter might have thought about his calling after he denied the Lord. So here he's denied the Lord in this miserable way, acted in a way utterly inconsistent with being a follower of Christ, let alone being the rock upon which the church would be built. This is speculation, of course, but I would assume Peter had to be thinking, that's all over now. Perhaps all he could hope for is that Jesus would forgive him and restore him as a disciple, but, but surely Peter's thought had to be, I, I forfeited any place of leadership among Christ's people. All I could hope for is to see the Lord and just, just be his little lamb. But I, I can't be an apostle. Who am I to be any sort of leader among Christ's people. But wonderfully, that's not what happens. In the context of Peter's shame and repentance, in the context of his reaffirmations of his love for Christ, the Lord restores Peter and recommissions him as an apostle. Full restoration, full reinstatement, no probation, no restrictions, no qualifications. You, Peter, you have this calling, feed my sheep. Remember, this restoration, like I said a moment ago, has already been foreshadowed. In Luke 22, Jesus had told Peter, Satan's asked for you, Peter, that he might sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. Remember, he said, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When you've turned again, when you've repented, when you've been restored, you're going to continue the work I've called you to do in strengthening your brothers. And now here it's all happened. It's all come to pass. And Christ now says to Peter, John 21, now that the events have come to fruition, he says, you, Peter, feed my sheep, shepherd my flock, tend my lambs, fulfill your calling, Peter. See, Peter was not rendered useless. 
Christ tells him, I still have use for you. You have a calling that I gave you at the first. And and listen, this sad chapter has not brought about the undoing of that call. Rise up, Peter. Strengthen your brothers. Feed my sheep. Fulfill your calling. Well, now please consider with me, fourthly and finally, we've seen that Jesus brings Peter to shame. Secondly, Jesus brings Peter to affirm his love. Thirdly, Jesus reconfirms Peter's calling as an apostle. Fourthly and finally, Jesus reconfirms Peter's calling as a disciple. He's reconfirmed his calling as an apostle, leader among Christ's people who is specially called to feed his sheep. Now he reconfirms Peter's calling as a disciple, as a Christ follower. And this is where the dialogue between Jesus and Peter ends. Verse 18, we read, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Of course, church tradition has it that Peter was crucified like the Lord And of course, such a death would be the ultimate undoing of his denials. The one who had denied the Lord would be martyred for his glory. And how that death must have glorified God. But but where does Jesus end the discussion? He goes back to the very beginning. To those first words he had said to Peter. What were those words? Follow me. Follow me. The most basic call to discipleship. The invitation to become a Christ follower. To sit at the master's feet. To be one of his little lambs, his little sheep who follows the good shepherd into green pastures. Follow me, Peter. One detail in the text I've not commented on is Jesus repeated address to Peter as Simon, son of John. We notice that? He calls him Simon, son of John every time. Actually, when Peter is first introduced to us back in chapter 1 of John's gospel, this is how Jesus addressed Peter. He calls him Simon, son of John. This is before he's given him the new name. He calls him Simon, son of John. And he gives him the name Cephas, which means Peter. But, but I think by calling him by this name, Simon, son of John, he's going back to the very beginning in a way. I used to call you by this name. Back when I first called you to follow me. And with those words, he's taking Peter back to the very first steps of discipleship. He's saying, let's restart. Simon, son of John, follow me. Be my disciple. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's restart. Let's begin again. You be my disciple. I will be your Lord Let's go back to where we were. Well, now, in the minutes that remain, I want to just consider some lessons for us. Just some lessons for us. We've, we've looked at the dialogue between Peter and the Lord. What, what lessons can we as Christians learn from this whole episode, this epilogue in John's gospel? Number one, brothers and sisters, let's remember, Christians can and do sin grievously. Christians can and do sin grievously. Real Christians, real Christians, I'm not talking about hypocrites or fakers. 
real Christians do commit the most serious sins. Sins which represent treason, betrayal, disloyalty to the Lord. Sins that cause them real shame. And, and, and sins that might be astounding to those who watch and look on. Real Christians do commit sins that are truly inconsistent with a profession of discipleship. Friends, it really does happen. Some of us are painfully aware of this. Maybe it's happened in our own lives. We've done things, said things, completely inconsistent with being followers of the Lord Jesus. Some of us have lived long enough or have been in church long enough. We've experienced this. We've seen this happen. How could that brother do that? How could that sister do that? How could I do that? None of us should be surprised that Christians are capable of sinning grievously. Look, we should all just adjust our expectations. The Christian life is not a life of unbroken triumph and success over sin. The Christian life often includes failures, setbacks, backslidings, disappointments to ourselves and to others. And, and listen, I just want us to be gripped by a sort of sober realism. Christians can and do sin grievously. But then I want us to appreciate something more. See, see when we see sin in ourselves, grievous sin, or see such sins in others, failures like those of the Apostle Peter or many of the other saints in the Bible who failed the Lord, we should see in it an opportunity to behold something larger and something brighter of the grace of God than we had ever seen before. That, that God's grace is so great to cover all of our sins. That, that God's mercy is, is, is more than any darkness that can pervade our lives. You don't just appreciate grace in the abstract. Well, I can read about it in a book. You don't appreciate grace in the abstract. We appreciate grace in actual experience. It really is true. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And, and when you see someone like Peter, you see that writ in letters larger than maybe you've ever seen it written before. And brothers and sisters, members of Emmanuel, we're going to see this in our church. I think, I think we're going to shock each other sometimes about some of the things we're capable of doing. We're sinners. We're made of the same stuff Peter is made of. We're going to fail one another. But there's an opportunity in those failures to see something so wonderful, something so bright and awesome about the grace of God as greater than our sins. And as the Lord himself said, those who have been forgiven much love much. It has to be true for us. It has to be true if we, like Peter, fail. If we, like Peter, are forgiven and restored, it has to be true that we ourselves enter into this larger understanding of God's grace and this greater commitment to love because we have been forgiven so much. What effect should this episode have had on Peter's life? He should have been the most gracious and forgiving person in the church. If we're aware of our betrayals of the Lord, our failures of the Lord, we too ought to be so possessed by a gracious spirit humble spirit, a forgiving spirit, because we understand in our own experience God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. Second lesson for us, remember, 
real love for Jesus may exist even when sin is present. Real love may exist even when sin is present. Did Peter love Jesus? Yes, he loved Jesus. But but what about his failures? What about his denials? How can it be true that he loved Jesus? Well, we should surely learn from this that real love for Jesus can exist even where sin is present, even in context where it's not apparent, not shining as brightly as it should. Real love for Jesus, listen, can be interrupted by fear or depression, by trying circumstances, by some kind of evil attack from the evil one, some form of temptation. Real love for Jesus can be obscured by our sins. And all of a sudden, that love does not produce the affections and obedience that it normally would, but it doesn't mean it's not present. And I just want us to understand this about ourselves. We're walking dichotomies. We have internal tensions within us. We're sinners, and yet all the while, we can sin and love Jesus. Peter really did love the Lord, and yet he was a sinner still. He's still capable of sinning against the Lord. What's the practical point in this? I just want you, brother or sister, to understand yourself. And understand the brothers and sisters around you. Just because you sin or because someone else sins doesn't mean they necessarily hate God or don't love the Lord Jesus. Those who love the Lord Jesus are still capable of great sin. And so it was in Peter's case. Real love for Jesus may exist when sin is present. But number three, third lesson for us. Remember, we learn here, I think, that Jesus ultimately is after our love. Jesus is after our love. Love is always the issue, not the record, not past performance, not a commitment to do better. It is spirit-wrought love for Christ, and this is what Jesus wants. Brother, sister, the Lord wants your heart. He wants your affections. He wants your love, not just your outward formalism and conformity. He says to you, My child, do you love me? My disciple, do you love me? I don't want to talk about the past. I don't want to talk about what failures or successes have gone before. Do you love me? And everything else in our lives flows out of love for Christ. All our obedience, all our worship, all our determination to follow Jesus. But this is the root issue. It's love for Jesus. So brother, sister, when confronted with your own sin and failure, you have to get back to this. It's not, am I good enough? It's not, have I really been all that I should be? No, the question that Christ asked to each one of us is, do you love me? You need to ask yourself, do I I love Christ? Do I want him? Is he my treasure and my joy and all my delight and all my soul satisfaction? Listen, there's a real lesson here for those of us who struggle with assurance of our salvation comes back to this. Do you love the Lord? Do you want Him? When you think of Christ, do you love Him? And that ultimately has to be where you go. Beholding the Savior. Falling at His feet. Treasuring Him. Loving Him. Wanting Him. This is the issue. 
We run into this often in membership interviews. I'll ask folks to give their testimony, and they get hung up looking back at dates. Well, did I believe then, or did I believe then, did I believe then? Look, what I really want to know is, do you love the Lord now? If you can say yes, you're, you're God's child. If in truth you actually have sort of spirit-wrought love in your heart for Christ, that bleeds forward in worship and adoration and obedience, that is the crucial issue. Number four, and most importantly, oh, that we could understand this. Remember, Christian, by the grace of Christ, you can always restart. By the grace of Christ, you can always restart. Jesus is pleased to restore the fallen and to revive the broken. As he said in Isaiah 57, 15, he comes to those who have a broken and contrite spirit. He dwells with them to revive the spirit of the lowly, to restore the spirit of the contrite. My fellow Christian, fellow disciple, you can always go back to the beginning and follow anew. I think Christ comes to us in our failures and our sins and says a very similar thing to Peter. He says to us, follow me. Come, come back to the beginning. Let's, let's get back to being my disciple. The Lord takes pleasure in restoring his fallen disciples by the grace of God in the strength of Christ. Brother, sister, get up and get back to following Jesus. I love telling Christians this. Christians who are very much aware of their own failures, their own sins, their own unworthiness before the Lord. I love telling them that one of the best things about the gospel, the best things I can tell you about the Lord Jesus is that with him you can restart. He's pleased to take you back to the first steps of discipleship. And when we sin, when we've fallen, and when we felt shame, and we've been driven to repentance and contrition, penitence before the Lord, this is always the next step. Let's, let's get back to following the Lord. Let's get back to being His disciple. Let's get back to the beginning. That's one of the most important things I think young Christians can learn. Get in this process, repentance, faith, following the Lord. And then we sin again, repentance, faith, follow the Lord. You've got to keep get back in, get, getting back up by His grace and following Him. The thing is, He allows us. That, that's not strong enough. He Himself brings us back to the beginning and says, let's just let's pick back up where we left off. He forgives us 70 times, 7 times, and more. And He allows us, like Peter, to restart in our walk with Him. Just to clarify, I'm not saying he saves us again or causes us to be born again, again. It's those that are born again, he is pleased to when they have fallen, revive them and restore them and bring them back to the beginning to follow him. All right, that, that, that's, that's my main message and my main lessons for us. I want to sort of end this message in a somewhat unusual way. I want to give just a few words here at the end to pastors. Now, stop what you're doing. Don't pause the recording. Don't turn it off, okay? If you're listening to this online, I want to give a few lessons to pastors and those who aspire to be 
pastors. Uh, and I'm going to do so for two reasons. First of all, this text has huge implications for Christian leaders. Huge implications for Christian leaders who, like Peter, are elders, maybe not apostles in the capital A sense, but Peter was an elder and he has advice and counsel to fellow elders. This text has huge implications for Christian leaders. So I have my eye or my heart on my fellow elders, Pastor Ben, Pastor Lai Chow, and the half dozen or so men in our congregation who I know aspire to the office of elder. There's huge applications for us that should be applied to us specifically. But here's the second thing, and this is for all of our members at Emmanuel. You, the members of Emmanuel Church, must be thoughtful about your pastors. You are the ones called of God to recognize and elect them. You're called to pray for them. You're called to submit to them, to be fed by them. You should be very thoughtful about who your pastors are and, frankly, what their lives and their callings are like. Not all are called to be leaders in the church. In fact, very few are called to be leaders in the church. But we are all called to know our leaders. You, brothers, you need to know your pastors. I don't mean like just know their names and their addresses, but to, to know something about their work and their calling and the burden they've been given by God. You're to be thoughtful about your leaders. So, so I want to exhort the brothers in our church who are either in this office or aspire to this office, and I want you, the members of Emmanuel, to listen into this as I exhort myself and these brothers. Here's some lessons for us, men. I'm, I'm speaking to you guys now, the, I don't know, 10 or so men that it would apply to. Number one, recognize, men, that the Lord is pleased to use weak men like Peter and weak men like us. On whom did Jesus say he would build his church? Was it not Peter? Not, not Acts 2 Peter, heroic super preacher, day of Pentecost, thousands converted Peter. He didn't say it to that Peter. He said it to the Peter of Matthew 16. That rash, arrogant, quick-tempered disciple. He said it to the Peter of Luke 22, who thought he was too big to fail, couldn't deny the Lord. He, he said it to that, that Peter who would deny the Lord. He said it to the Peter of John 18, who did in fact fail the Lord so miserably, and now he says it again to the Peter of John 21. He gives him this calling, that, that man who had such a track record, who was made of such stuff. Peter calls him to be a leader in the church. He, the Lord is in the business of calling weak men. And that won't change with us. Second lesson, brothers. Failure does not have to be the end of the story. There is a way back. Failure does not have to be the end of the story. There is a way back. Now, some men never make it back. They, they crumble under the weight of ministry, under the weight of their own failures and sins, and, and that's it for them. And, and other men... This is important here. Other men fail in such a way that I think prudence requires that they should not be restored to leadership, though they can certainly be restored 
as disciples. So I'm just saying that up front. I'm not saying every man who falls in a major way, sins in a major way, should be restored to pastoral leadership. I'm not engaging that question really right now. All I mean to say is this, that for many, failure does not have to mean the end of your ministry. Christ is pleased, even still today, to restore and recommission men. Your sins, brother, do not have to crush your ministry and your usefulness. There is forgiveness for you if you, like Peter, come to a place of penitence and a place of the reaffirmation of your love for Christ, and if He is pleased to recommission you. Jesus is still in the practice of recommissioning His shepherds. Listen, no doubt for some of us, probably for all of us, Throughout our ministries, it will be true that our failures will loom so large in our minds. I just think pastors are so often aware of their failures. They loom much larger than any successes. And our personal and pastoral failures can cripple us and destroy us. Brothers, remember this passage. This is like a lifeline for your soul. Sin and failure do not have to be the end of the story. Sin and failure do not have to render us useless to the Lord. Listen, there is hope for every true-hearted pastor in this passage that we can still be used by our Lord in spite of our many failures. We should think when we have sinned that part of our repentance as those called to lead Christ's flock is maybe to do like David in Psalm 51. What did David say at the end of his repentance? He says, then, he asked for God to restore the joy of his salvation and to forgive him. He says, then I will teach sinners your ways. We should remember the words of Jesus in Luke 22. What does Jesus say to Peter? After you've recovered, after you've turned again, after you've repented, then strengthen your brothers. Or his words in John 21, do you love me, Peter? Are we past those denials? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Part of our repentance and restoration will be to feed the flock of God out of the overflow of our own experience of the grace of God. I think the idea is that David had experienced God's grace. Peter had experienced God's grace. And then Jesus turns those men to go and tell others of the grace of God. We, we minister to other sinners and other failers like us out of the overflow of our experience of grace and forgiveness. Number three, brothers, remember that you yourself are a disciple. You're a disciple before you're a pastor. Remember that you yourself are a disciple, and you're a disciple before you're a pastor. Peter was a disciple before he was an apostle. He was given the call to follow Jesus before he was given the call to be the rock. You, like Peter, are called to follow Jesus before you're called to feed his sheep. You must walk with Christ, follow Christ, commune with Christ. You have your own personal relationship with him just like Peter. And that relationship, listen, and that relationship will be marked by the dynamics of sin and grace, repentance and forgiveness, dynamics that constitute the experience of every disciple of Christ. You're going to sin, you're going to feel shame, and you're going to repent, and you're going to be forgiven and restored, and you're going to experience His sympathies and His grace. Your experience will be the same as other Christians. So pastor, or would-be pastor, you are not a super Christian. 
You, you, you want to crumble under the own weight of your ministry, project yourself as some sort of super-Christian that, that, that's just sort of too big to fail. You've got it all together. You don't have any particular needs or struggles, and you just you live out that facade and see how that goes for you. We will crumble. We will fail. We cannot be Jesus for our people. We, like the members of the church, our members ourselves, we are little lambs of Christ's flock. We must never forget that though we are called to shepherd the flock, we ourselves are part of the flock. And though, brother, you are called to strengthen and help the Lord's disciples, you yourself are his disciple. May we never forget it. Fourthly and finally, brothers, we learn something here of the pastor's calling. What is the calling that the Lord gave to Peter. I would contend it's the, the central calling of every pastor. Your calling is to feed Christ's sheep. Your calling is to feed Christ's sheep. It is not to build our own kingdom. It's not to multiply our sheep or our disciples. Jesus entrusts Peter with the sacred charge of feeding his, that is, Christ's sheep. They're his, not yours or mine. And, and how, how should we care for that which is not ours, but that which belongs to our master, the good shepherd? Listen, all you have to do is read Ezekiel 34. about. You'll see there how God thinks about false shepherds who use the sheep and abuse the sheep and fleece the sheep for their own gain. Go read that chapter. It's horrifying. It's terrifying. The judgment that will come upon such men is a nightmare. We can't be like those false shepherds in Ezekiel 34 or the false shepherds of Israel in Jesus' day. We can't be like those men. We must be like the good shepherd of John 10, the noble shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Listen, we work, we labor for the good of the flock. Peter goes on, I think as I mentioned earlier, in his epistle, 1 Peter 5, to write about being a pastor and about being a shepherd. Man, I want you to listen to these words. 1 Peter chapter 5, hopefully this passage is familiar to you. One of the most important passages in the Bible on shepherding. These words are from Peter. 30 years on, here's the very man who heard these words from the Lord Jesus, feed my sheep. And Peter heard that in John 21. Here's him writing 30 years later now as a seasoned pastor. After having had that experience with the Lord on the beach in John 21, he writes this in 1 Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You say, what is that? I don't know, but it sounds awesome. Can you imagine the Lord, the good shepherd, the true shepherd, looking upon weak men like us, saying, well done, my disciple, my under-shepherd. Here it is, the unfading crown of glory. Friends, I have missed you so badly. And this medium of recording these messages is just so inadequate. But I hope wherever you are as you listen to this, you would behold something wonderful in this passage about the person of Jesus Christ and how great is His grace, how great is His mercy and His forgiveness, and that your soul would just run out to Him in love and in affection. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless this word to our hearts. We pray that you would help us to see and know and experience the presence of Christ in our lives, even in our sins, maybe even especially in our sins. We are so aware of our failures we pray that these dynamics of shame and repentance and sweet pardon and forgiveness and restoration and discipleship would be the experience of our lives. May you help each one of us to follow you all the days of our lives faithfully as your people. May you be with us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your nature is such, your person is such, that you, you are pleased to Bring us back to the start to forgive us and to call us anew to follow you. We recommit ourselves now to follow you and to love you all of our days. Protect us and be with us. Bring good to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.